uh, pastor told me that I could share a little bit uh, about our family and our ministry and what we do. And I have to be very careful because when you give me an opportunity to speak, a little bit could mean hour, two hours, three hours, something like that. Um, because, because I love what God has called us to do. I can talk about camp, you can ask my wife, forever. There have been times that she has come to me and said, stop talking. And, uh, and all of us who are married understand the benefit that God gives us by giving us a good wife who will just elbow us or kick us under the table when we need uh, that. So now I'm out of reach and I can do whatever I want. And, uh, but I, uh, I want to just start off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she can pull a Dr. Scoville and throw a songbook at me if, uh, if she needs. Uh, I want to just start off by saying thank you to you guys. Um, many of you, this is the first opportunity I've had to, to meet you in person. Uh, but I know many of you have prayed for our family. Um, I, I want Ellie, could, could you please stand up and wave? All right. That's our little Ellie belly. Um, she looks a little bit different than a lot of the pictures that, uh, came out a while ago. She was our little bald baby. And, um, she is the one that God, uh, allowed us to go through the biggest trial of our life, uh, with, um, when she was 18 months old, she was diagnosed with leukemia while we were on vacation. And many of you came alongside of us in prayer and prayed just that God would give us grace to go through the trial, uh, but also that God would heal her. And uh, it's kind of what we'll be talking about as we, we go through the message tonight. But God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we think, but God always does what he knows is best. And so through the whole trial with leukemia, God saw fit to not answer that God would heal her by that, but he, yet he maximized our ministry capability by moving us to even a third hospital so that Ellie could have a bone marrow transplant. So right now, Ellie probably has more doctors that know her than any other kid in America because she was in three different hospitals throughout the course of her treatment and has, I don't know, what, you think you have 18 doctors? Five doctors. Uh, and uh, God just has has used our baby girl to maximize uh, our opportunity to give the gospel. And we're so thankful for that. And there is no way that we could have gone through that with a right mindset, with the right desire to honor and glorify God without your prayers. And so your prayers for our family really, um, although we're, we're so thankful to have Ellie here, but the answers to your prayers are not just the little girl sitting here 100% healthy, but the answers to your prayers really are that there have been numerous doctors who have interacted with her and with her family and got to hear what really impassions us, and that's the gospel. And so thank you. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Boy, I was doing really good before I got up here. Um, and I'll also, I just want to share just a little bit about what we do. Right? We serve at Wolf Mountain Camps. Okay. Uh, as Pastor Lynn it, uh, mentioned earlier, it's been the the desire that God's put on my heart ever since I was in seventh grade. And uh, I mentioned this morning that decisions are directional. And uh, and, and really, we're going to talk about how we think through decisions that would be God-honoring. And I made a decision when I was in seventh grade to go work at a camp for a summer. Now, I went because there was a certain young lady going to work there. 
and uh, you guys know who she is. And uh, I won't say her name just in case it gets out. All right. But God used that that summer to work in my life to fall in love with ministry and to fall in love with what God could do by taking a roller skating rink and a soccer game and a lake and bringing people. Oh, thank you, Jeff. And bringing people to a place where they would be eliminated eliminating all the distractions from the world and getting to hear the gospel. And so I'm so thankful that God has allowed me and my family uh, to be in this ministry. I want to share with you just briefly our mission statement. I believe every good missionary has to have a mission statement. Because if you don't have a mission statement, how do you know if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? And so I want to share uh, briefly here. Oh, that's good stuff. What our mission statement is. We as missionaries of Wolf Mountain are a home missions ministry. As Pastor mentioned earlier today, all of our staff are missionary supported. We actually go out to churches and raise our own support so that we don't have to take money from camper fees to actually pay for our family's livelihoods. Now, we do have some support as far as camp owns the house that we live in, but they provide that for us, which in California, that's a huge deal. Um, I was looking, uh, not that I was looking to move, into an apartment but just out of curiosity i was looking at a one-bedroom apartment in grass valley um it's 800 800 if you're willing to share the rest of the house with other people that's 800 a month for a bedroom in a house with other people um for a for an apartment by yourself it's about 1700 a month so we're very thankful that god has provided uh, a lot of our our benefits and things through camp um, but we are a home missions ministry. One of the things that that does is that helps keep us accountable to a lot of different churches. And so we have churches that are constantly very, very interested in what we're doing at camp. When it, whenever we make big decisions, there are churches, hey, I heard you're doing this. Hey, I heard you're having this speaker in. Yeah, yes, pastor, that, that is. That's what we're doing. All right, just checking up on you. Just we're praying for you. That's the best thing that we could hope for is, is camp people. We're a home mission ministry using the unique aspects of the camping ministry. Now, I know you guys have a bowling alley, but not many churches have... That, that was a joke. I know you guys don't own the bowling alley. <laughs> not many churches have a, a horse ranch, right? I, di- I didn't see one here. Uh, paintball field, high ropes course, uh, laser tag. Oh, see, those are all unique things that we as a camp get to do. And what every one of those is, is that's something that now a young person will see and be interested in saying, hey, I want to go to horsemanship camp because I want to learn about horses. Well, we want them to come to horsemanship camp, not just so they can learn about horses, but why? So they can learn about Christ. So we use the unique aspects of the camping ministry, the high ropes course, the paintball, the laser tag, the horses, as an opportunity to share the gospel with people who'd be interested in coming for that reason. We use those unique aspects of the the ministry to do three things. Reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ. This last summer, we saw 34 young people come to know Christ in the course of the summer. That's 34 people who will live forever with us in heaven. That's pretty cool. And, And through the last eight, nine summers, Again, I know we've seen 
We've seen well over a hundred young people come to know Christ. We're boy, I, I should have done the math. But those are all eternal souls that have been introduced to Jesus Christ through the ministry that God's allowed us to have at camp. Boy, I can't think of anything else I'd, I'd rather do. But not only do we seek to reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ, we seek to strengthen families. So even this last weekend, we had a men's retreat up at Wolf Mountain, and our speaker was Dr. John Vaughn. Do you know Dr. Vaughn? Um, Dr. John Vaughn spoke, and it was so abnormal for a, for a men's retreat. It wasn't even a couple's retreat. But two of his messages were, what do I learn by loving my wife, and what do I teach by loving my wife? I'll tell you, every married man at that men's retreat went home making, making a decision to love, their life, to love their wife like Christ loves the church. Man, if we can impact families, if we can impact men to love their families more, to lead their families in a godly way, that's something that helps us do our third uh, aspect of our mission statement. Reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen families, and serve local churches. If we can help encourage the families and the bodies that are in the churches, then we get to go back and help encourage the churches, which is what we need, what our community needs, what our country needs. So thankful that Pastor Len took the opportunity to go and, and make an impact. We see... we. We, we hear about opportunities like that, and we need to be praying for opportunities like that. But revival starts in the church. The revival starts in God's people. So as a camp, that's what we want to do. We want to encourage God's people in God's church to do right, to love Him. And with that, we say that camp is a place of decision. It's not a place of discipleship. If you're coming to camp every week so you can continue to grow, You've got some things out of balance, right? Because that's just not what camp is going to be for. When you come to camp, we're going to preach decision-based messages. Decision-based messages in the areas of salvation, full surrender to Christ, and a consistent Christian walk. That's what our desire is, is to see those decisions made so that you can come back to your church and you can be discipled and continue to grow in your relationship with Christ so that you in turn, strengthen your family, reach young people for the Lord Jesus Christ, and encourage your church. See how it's kind of full circle there? Right? So it is true. We are missionaries. What we do is we fulfill the mission that God has given us. And in that, our hope is to encourage the churches that we serve. This last year, we were able to serve, we were able to serve 60 different ministries throughout Nevada and California. Let's see, Nevada, California, one in Oregon, and one in Washington, uh, one church in Washington. And we are excited about what God has allowed us to do and what God has called us to do. And you know what? We have a lot of fun while we do it too. Yeah, we get, we get horses and shooting ranges. And, well, those are the things I enjoy. But high ropes, I'm, I'm not a heights person. You know, I don't know if anybody else in here is not a heights person, but the program tries to get me excited about our high ropes course and adding new elements. We can get this one. It's 80 feet tall. Okay, I can have as much fun on the ground as you can have 80 feet in the air. But it is required for me to work at our ropes course that I have to climb all the events, or at least to the best of my ability, which is sometimes just holding on to the ladder. All right? But you know what? Even those are teachable moments. It's kind of fun. I'll, I, I'll mention it because I, 
I preach it at our high ropes course all the time. Our, our ropes course is called the sifter because it sifts the boys from the men because it's just that kind of scary element. But what, what, we, what we like to teach there is, hey, kids, this is, this is an example of faith. It's really easy to sit in a service and say, yeah, God, I'll trust you. All right. But then when you go home, it's really easy to say, well, I mean, that, that was at camp. You know, I mean, it's a little harder now. What our high ropes course, we go through a demonstration at the beginning. Talk about how the carabiners can actually pick up a Ford Ranger pickup truck. And the ropes and the rigging, we can hold 2,500 pounds with them. And everybody on the ground is like, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you get that kid 10 feet up in the air and they don't believe anything you said. And you know what? Isn't that so much what faith is? We can sit in church and we can hear God's word preached and we're like, yes, amen, preacher. That's right. And then we leave church and uh, God puts a little trial in our life. And, oh, well, I mean, God, I could trust you when things were good, but you, you don't understand. Things, the, the situation is different now. And we always tell the kids at the ropes course, we didn't change harnesses on you before you went up the tree. We didn't change any of the carabiners or the ropes. So what's different? Well, Mr. John, now I'm in a tree. Does that mean that the equipment's not good? Well, no. Does that mean you're not willing to trust now? Yeah, maybe. And it's always a good reminder for me, whenever I make a decision, whenever God's teaching me something, to remember that it's not just when I made that decision, it's also when I go out and have to live that decision. That's when it becomes tough. And so, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I totally failed. I skipped on my first notes. Um, but that's our mission. That's what we do at camp. I do want to introduce my wife, Audrey, and our oldest daughter, Brooklyn, and our youngest daughter, Ellie. We all serve at camp. Uh, in fact, this last weekend, uh, Ellie became our youngest dishwasher at camp, right? And uh, she helps dry. Don't worry, she doesn't help cook the food. Um, and they, my two girls also serve whenever we do tours. They are also the ones that go on the tours, especially for ladies' retreats. And they like to share the things that they know about camp. My wife, Audrey, uh, hosts all of our women's retreats uh, that we have in the month of October. She also does all of our promotional material, our graphic design work, our website, as well as all of our camp contracting. And so uh, I really don't do anything at camp um, except just give these people uh, and, and the rest of our staff jobs to do. Uh, that's what a director does, right? We direct and then other people do, right? And uh, I wish it worked that way. Uh, but I am the director at camp and that means I get to do a lot of different things. Uh, yesterday I did a tour. Uh, I did dishes earlier this week. I got to preach uh, for a science camp that we had in and uh, we're just excited about what God's allowed us to do. I'm gonna take one drink here and then uh, we're gonna talk tonight about this idea of making decisions. Excuse me. I mentioned this morning that, uh, that one of the things we have to keep in mind, especially when we think about camp, is that decisions are directional. Now, what do I mean by the fact that decisions are directional? Well, in, in a very simple way, if I was to get from here to the doors, I would have to take a step in that way, wouldn't I? It, it wouldn't help me any, if I was going to go to the doors, it does not help me to go this way. Because 
my direction is actually going in the wrong way. Now we won't look there uh, for for lack of uh, for for sake of time, but let's all let's all think about Lot. When Abraham and Lot met together in Genesis chapter 13, and they said, "Hey, our shepherds are having some problems here," right? Did Lot answer Abraham when Abraham said, "Lot, I want you to go ahead and look out, and I want you to choose a land." Did Lot say, "You know what, Abraham?" I would like to live in Sodom and lose my family, and I would like my wife to be turned into a, a pillar of salt, and I would like my, my whole family to go into ruin, and for all of eternity, I would like to be known as a guy who started out righteous but finished horribly. Is that what Lot told Abraham? No. Lot basically looked out and he saw that the plains of Jordan were well watered everywhere. And the Bible says this, that Lot pitched his tents toward Sodom. That phrase is actually really important because it doesn't say that Lot moved to Sodom. But what we see between Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis chapter 19 is the result of a decision that Lot made. And Lot, in Genesis 13, he made a decision to take the plains of Jordan and he actually set the door of his tent facing toward Sodom. You find out just a couple chapters later that Lot was living in Sodom. And that's when he was taken away and Abraham had to go rescue him and the kings of Sodom. But then in Genesis chapter 19, Lot wasn't just content living in Sodom. He was a ruler and a judge at the gate of Sodom when God sent the two angels into Sodom. Now, when, when Lot was was worshiping with Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, I don't think he would have thought that one day he would be a ruler in the most wicked city in the history of the world. But Lot made a decision. And you know what? Each and every one of us make a, a bunch of decisions in our lives. And wouldn't it be nice if we knew that all the decisions that we made were going to be God-honoring and God-glorifying? But you know what? We really can't be assured of that unless we think like God thinks. You know, it's kind of interesting. The longer my wife and I have been married, which we've been married nine years, nine and a half years now, the more I am starting to think like her, right? Not necessarily that I agree with it, but that I think like her. So now I see a spider in our house and I think, you know what? My wife doesn't like spiders. I should kill that spider. Up until just about a year ago, I didn't care. Spiders eat flies. I'd rather have spiders in my house than flies. But my wife will get up, walk across the room, and get me to go kill a spider for her. And so the longer I, I've been married to her, the more I realize spiders bug her. She doesn't want them in her living space. Because I love my wife, I will remove the spiders from her living space. It's taken me a while. I'm a little bit slow, all right? I also, now when I go to the grocery store and I see dark chocolate, I personally don't like dark chocolate, but I know that my wife loves dark chocolate. So if I have the opportunity to get my wife dark chocolate, I think I should get my wife dark chocolate. But then I start thinking like her and she's thinking, I don't need this dark chocolate. It's so bad for me. So then I don't get it. 
and then I'm in trouble because I didn't go with my first instinct. Guys, you know what that's like, right? Yeah. But she did get a dark chocolate Kit Kat this morning. So we're, we're good for today. But I want to share with us three truths that we need to keep in mind as we make decisions, as we go into different circumstances and in areas of life that we need to put on the filter and think like God thinks. That's the only way that we know that when we make decisions, all of our decisions are going to be God honoring and God glorifying. Uh, Quickly here, again, I I have uh, three truths here. John chapter 13 is uh, is where we're going to be looking in uh, in for the first one of these. And <coughs> excuse me, John chapter thirteen is a really interesting passage. Jesus has his disciples gathered together for one last supper, and he washes their feet and he's teaching them. He's taking this entire opportunity to teach his disciples one last thing before he knows that he's getting ready to be captured and crucified. But his disciples aren't thinking quite like he thinks. And in the midst of this passage, we find a very interesting discourse between Peter and Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 13, verse 6, Jesus um, says this, Then cometh he to Simon Peter and said unto him, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, I apologize. <clears throat> this is another, another aspect of this story, but there's wording in here I like. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. It says, Then saith Jesus unto them, this is to all his disciples, All ye shall be offended of me, because this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, who is saying this? Jesus. And Jesus is God. And Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophet. So this is God quoting God's word coming out of the mouth of God saying, hey, guys, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be struck down. And all of you are going to be scattered. And this is where I sometimes find myself like Peter. Verse 33, it says this. Peter saith unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Okay, what just happened here? Jesus quoted the Bible, and Peter said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. We were were looking... in a situation like that and think, Peter, I don't, I, I don't think you're thinking right. But then Jesus continues to go on here in verse 34. And Jesus says unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. So this is in my mind, this is something that I have to do with my girls often or occasionally what they have to do to me. This is like Jesus going up to Peter and grabbing him by the face. He's already made this statement, and Peter said, no, I'm not going to be offended. Jesus is like, no, no, all of you are going to be offended. Peter's like, no, I'm not. So Jesus comes to him, and he says, no, Peter, look, look at me. Look at me, Peter, because you're a special case. Tonight, you're actually going to deny me three times. 
you would think that Peter would get the point, right? I mean, I would hope that I would get the point. I know I have a lot of similarities to Peter in my life, but I would hope that if Christ was looking at me in the face and saying this, I would get the point. But what does Peter say? I love this. Verse 35. Peter says, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the other disciples. Here's the first truth that we have to, we have to keep in mind if we're going to think like God. God knows what he's talking about, even if we don't understand it. Have you ever sat in a church service and you, you've heard God speak through his word? You've been reading in God's word and you're like, well, but God, hold on. This whole, but all the godly shall suffer persecution, that doesn't apply to me. But then yet when persecution comes or when trouble comes, we're like, whoa, God, I didn't sign up for this. Or other things that, that God promises us in his word, other things that God teaches us in his word, we want to agree as long as we agree. But we're not willing to trust that God knows what he's talking about, even when I don't understand it. And as we make decisions, as we seek to be God-honoring in our decisions, we have to remember God is the ultimate authority. And when God speaks to us in our lives, when God is teaching us in our lives, that all we need to do, our response, is to submit. And we will look at this situation with Peter and think, you're dumb, I mean, really, if I can use the word stupid, sorry, girls, all right? My girls always say, don't say stupid, it's mean. That's right. But, I mean, this is as stupid as you can be, that Peter is looking at Christ and saying, I'm sorry, you're wrong. But how many times do we do that? How many times when God tells us or asks us, for instance, to give, us our, to give him our children, and say, you know what, will you trust me with the life of your kid? I love her more than you do. No, God, please, I mean, just, just let me have her. But, but God, you, you may call her to be a, a missionary in the Middle East. And God's like, right, if I called her, that's the best thing for her. But, but no, God, that's, no, um, you don't understand, that's my baby. And God's like, no, 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 remember, I'm the one asking I'm the one calling. Are you willing to trust that I know what I'm asking and what I'm talking about? Or are you going to be the one who's in control of your thinking and of your decisions apart from me? So truth number one, if we're going to have any kind of God-honoring decision-making in our lives, we have to understand and realize that God knows what he's talking about but one that God had to teach us, and I'm thankful that he did. If you turn to Daniel chapter 3, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I'm sorry, we are going to be going back and forth here. In Daniel chapter 3, this was a passage that God made, God made very special to my wife and I as we were sitting in the hospital. In Daniel chapter 3, we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. But I want us to pay attention to the wording that they use when they're talking to the most powerful man in the entire world. 
These are three guys who have been elevated to basically the rank of governors. And they are standing before... And if you read about Nebuchadnezzar, he was a scary guy. I mean, he was... He, he, he was not a diplomatic leader. He was a, a dictatorial leader. Uh, and these three men, godly young men, are standing in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 16, we see this discourse. And it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Pause for just a second here. What this phrase means is basically, King, this is not just an off-the-cuff answer. This was actually something that we determined a long time ago. If you go back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about the fact that Daniel purposed in his heart to not defile himself with the king's meat. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that decision to not eat the meat that had been offered to the idols. Right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, King, listen, we understand who you are, and we are not being flippant with this. We have made a predetermination. When it comes to this matter of bowing down to your idol, this was already decided. We're not, we're not careful to answer you, meaning we didn't just come up with this on the spot. But their answer here is astounding. Because it shows a trust in God far beyond what most of us would find ourselves taking. Verse 17, it says, If it be so, O God, or our God, whom we serve, shall deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O King. End of story, right? That's where most of us, well, we know that God can deliver us and he can take this away. End of story. And is God able to do that? Absolutely. But the next verse is where we see real faith. Verse 18, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Do you see what they're saying? They're basically revealing our second truth that we have to keep as a filter in our thinking. That God has the right, no matter the outcome. It's not just that God knows what he's talking about and we need to trust him. But whatever it is, God has the right, no matter the outcome. They say, they, they make a faith statement here by saying, King, God can save us from this burning, fiery furnace. And he's more powerful than you. He can deliver us out of your hand. But we don't want you to be thrown off. In case he chooses to not do that, we don't want you to think that God doesn't have the power. Because you know what? It is God's right to let us burn up in that fiery furnace. If God has called us to stand up for right, and standing up for right causes us to be thrown into a furnace, and God lets us die there, that's okay. You see, we want to trust God and we want to make decisions that benefit us. But the reality is, God doesn't call us to all make decisions that always benefit us. When we have to understand that our lives, our children, 
our security, that all belongs to God. And if I lose all of that, God is still God and God is still faithful and God has the right no matter the outcome. So as we sat in the hospital and prayed for months, God had to keep reminding us that. You know what? It may be that God takes our daughter home. And that's his right. And I can't turn and be bitter against God. I can't hate God for that because it was his right in the first place. And if God's or if the results of the decisions that God wants me to take don't line up with my end results, that's okay. Because God is ultimately in charge of the outcome. And you know what? In a lot of ways, that takes a lot of pressure off. Because I'm not responsible for keeping my daughter alive. I'm responsible for trusting God. I tell you, we shared that with all of our doctors. Not all of them understood that. You know, we, we would tell them, you know what? We believe that God has given us the best medical team in the country. We know that because we were all over the country in treatment. And we told them, our daughter's life is in God's hands. We believe that God has given us the best doctors, and so we will trust you. And if things go horribly wrong... It wasn't your fault. In fact, there was a day that our primary oncologist brought us into a room, a teeny tiny little room. Teeny tiny little rooms in hospitals are horrible, by the way. They call them consultation rooms. They're not fun. And he sat us down. And uh, our doctors are all from Korea. They're very matter of fact. Uh, and, and like, so, so our doctor sat us down. He said, this was after four months of treatment. He sat us down and he said, her treatment didn't work. She has a 2% chance of living. All right, good consultation. You know, I mean, that's really what we were sitting and we're like, no, Lord, we've been praying. There's churches praying. There's people praying. And then he looked at us and he said, but you're Christians, which we had tried to make very obvious. We had tried to witness to our doctors. We, our walls were plastered in scripture verses that were sent to us from people around the country. And he says, if you believe in God and he wants her to die, she has a 0% chance of living. But if he wants her to live, it doesn't matter what the statistics say. She has a 100% chance of living. I can't argue with that, but that's not what we like to think like, is it? We want to know the results. God, I'll trust you if the results are good. God, I'll take this job if it's going to be more money and it's going to be more comfort and whatever. And God's like, you know what? Maybe I want you to make a sacrifice. And why don't you just leave the results up to me? And I'll take care of that. So one, we have to understand that God knows what he's talking about. Number two, we have to understand that the results are really up to God. And number three, this is John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, one of my favorite passages in scripture. 
Also one of the most perplexing passages in Scripture. It starts off by saying, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And this was the Mary that anointed Jesus uh, uh, with ointment. And then verse 3, it says, Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And Jesus heard that. He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Well, I mean... God knows what he's talking about. Jesus just said, Lazarus isn't going to die. So what does Jesus do? He actually tarries for several days. And then if you hop down just a few verses to verse 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Hold on. Wait. What? Verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Something doesn't seem to line up here. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? But let's just pause here and let's think like Mary and Martha. Their brother's sick. They send to the Lord and they say, Lord, he whom thou lovest, You've been in our home many times. You know Lazarus. He's sick. He's not doing well. Jesus sends back word, this is not unto death. Okay, Jesus isn't coming to heal him. Lazarus, your your cough hasn't gone away. Lazarus, your your fever hasn't broken. broken. Another day or two later, Lazarus, you're not looking so great. Think of what Mary and Martha were going through at this time. Jesus has just said, Lazarus is not going to die, but this is unto the glory of God, that the Son of Man might be glorified. All of a sudden, in four days, Lazarus is dead. I, I like to read some of my own emotions into Bible stories. I can't say that this is what they're feeling right there, but if this was me in that situation, I would be very confused. Because I would be thinking, what in the world, Lord? Like, you just said he wasn't going to die, but he's dead. And then what happens? Then Christ shows up a good while after he's dead to the point that Lazarus stinketh in the grave. It's pretty clear that he was dead. I don't know what Mary and Martha's first response was to Christ when they saw him. I don't know if it was a a frustration of where were you? But then we see Christ do the most amazing thing that there was no way that they could have imagined. Christ goes up to the grave, says, roll back the stone. They're like, what? Roll back. Lord, he stinks. We're not going to open that up. Right? That's like moldy Tupperware. They roll back the stone and Christ says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, many people reading in this, they say that Christ had to use Lazarus' name specifically because then all the dead people would have come forth if 
because Christ is so powerful. But what happens? Mary and Martha now are sitting here. I get it. I understand who you are. You have victory over death. And they understood the third truth that we have to have in our minds as we make decisions and as we want to continually follow God in our lives. And it's pretty simple. God's purposes are far better than my own. And I may make decisions that may actually end up hurting me and they're the right decision because God has a better plan. God has a bigger plan. And ultimately, God is going to get more glory from that. I know I refer back to Ellie a lot with this. And maybe one day the Lord will give us a new illustration this. But when we found out that her COG, Child Oncology Group Protocol, when, when she was diagnosed, day one, she started this protocol that every kid that is diagnosed with leukemia in a COG hospital, which is 1,400 hospitals across this country, England, Australia, New Zealand, and I think India. Every kid goes through the same protocol. When we found out after four months of treatment, pretty much her cancer was not affected at all, we were devastated. And when we found out the only option, medically speaking, was a bone marrow transplant, we thought, there's no way. You hear, you hear horror stories about transplants and that type of stuff. You see, we were kind of like Mary and Martha, where we're like, no, no, Lord, we've been praying. You don't understand. You would have gotten a lot of glory from coming and healing Lazarus. We would have told everybody, right? You see, Lazarus, remember when he was sick? He's not sick anymore. Look, his cough went away. His fever broke. Christ is like, no. No, we're gonna, I'm going to get more glory if I do it my way. And what God allowed us to go through the last six months of treatment there and through the next two years of follow-up, God took us to an entirely new hospital, to meet an entirely new medical team that we got to share God's awesome story of love for our family and for the world. And God's plan was far better than ours because you know our plan? was that Ellie didn't get sick. And now we look back and we're like, wow, God, I don't know that I would say, Lord, please send us through it again. But I definitely couldn't look back over the last four years of our lives and I wouldn't wish for anything else. Because what God taught us, what God has allowed our ministry, we used to be camp missionaries. But for a year, really about two years of our lives, we were also hospital missionaries. You don't just get that opportunity. God gave us that opportunity. And the people we got to share, we got to share the gospel with our chaplain who had no clue what it was. <laughs> you know? I mean, those are the types of things that only God can do. And you look back and you're like, God, you did that far better than anything I could have imagined, than anything I could have planned. But you know what? We don't always keep that in mind at the beginning do we? So as we go into decisions that we make, and, and I feel comfortable preaching this message, not just to a group of kids at camp, but to a church like this, because in my church, we have about five guys 
that are going into big career-changing decisions that they're making. Several guys going into retirement. Several guys changing uh, fields after 20 years into new things. We all have decisions that we are making daily. And our decisions are directional. And I think at the end of all of our decisions, we would want to say that we have given God the honor and glory he deserves by making right decisions. How can we make sure we're making right decisions? By keeping in mind that God does know what he's talking about. So if he is asking us to make a decision, we can trust him. But the results really are up to him. If he's asked, I need to trust, and I need to trust him with the results. And at the end of it all, the main goal is that God gets the honor and glory in my life. Boy, in a lot of ways, that takes a lot of pressure off. And the pressure that we now have is to stay close to God's word, is to be learning and growing in God's word so that we can hear him speak, so that we know those decisions to make. And again, it takes a lot of pressure off because the results are up to God. I just need to trust him. Are you willing to trust him with your decisions? Let's pray.